Just listening to the Public Health Service March performed by the U.S. Coast Guard Band. You're about to hear a lot about the Public Health Service, and I guess they deserve to have their own march. Why not? I had plans for my next podcast. All kinds of plans. It took me a few months to research, write, and produce Canada's cast, my piece about the Battle of Athens in Tennessee. It was a good time, and I hope you had a chance to listen to it. Afterward, I wanted to dive right into research for a podcast on the L.A. riots. What's more exciting than a good riot? Tinderbox Podcast is supposed to be an audio tour of civil and political conflict, and I originally thought I was going to be doing a survey of armed riots, confrontations, insurrections, and that type of thing. Of course, the situation changed. You might have heard of this pandemic thing going on. I don't know. It's been in the news, but I'm kind of thinking it's not that big of a deal, right? Just kidding. Like most people, I've wanted to know how we got to this point. The snail's pace catastrophe we're experiencing has laid out all the flaws in our society. I wanted to know how these flaws came to be. So I produced the last podcast, Outfluenza Part 1, about the flu making a difference in politics. But as I read more and tried to understand the history of pandemics in the 20th century, I kept coming across historical gems. That's all I can really call them. Because studying history is a lot like those geeks walking the beach with a metal detector at 7 a.m. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? They look at a lot of grains of sand, those geeks, because they're searching. And I'm sure those people enjoy relaxing on the beach when it's appropriate. But during that moment, they're hell-bent on finding something. Coins, Corvette fenders, a piece of pirated gold bouillon. Studying history similarly means covering a lot of ground. Occasionally, you find treasure. Today's story will be broadly about the founding of the American Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I stumbled onto this story as I was trying to understand the CDC's role versus other health agencies in the government. I actually started out wanting to know what the Surgeon General does. I still don't know what the Surgeon General does. But in the origins of the CDC, I discovered a story of political and civil drama that I think you'll enjoy and I think goes along with this podcast. In today's second edition of Outfluenza, we're going to hear about visionaries and philanthropists, government and the private sector, malaria, mosquitoes, institutional faith, and the ways in which driven people can create legacies. You're about to find out how the origins of the CDC have a lot to do with Coca-Cola. Yes, the beverage in the red can. To kick us off, I want to start almost in present day. I want to take you back a few years to a paper published by a magazine called the Millbank Quarterly. This is a healthcare policy expert magazine. Some of these experts were extremely concerned about documents they turned up and they wrote an article about these documents. Now, you too can get your hands on government documents using the Freedom of Information Act, which lets people, and I've done this myself and successfully, lets you request documents from the government on a particular subject. The documents these researchers collected had to do with a specific subject. That subject at hand was this. What were the soda giant Coca-Cola and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention emailing each other about? You actually have to wonder why they even asked the question. Maybe they got a hot tip about the CDC and Coca-Cola. The documents revealed a lot of information. What you saw were frequent communications between the CDC and Coca-Cola over a number of years, with the soda merchants trying hard to curry favor with the CDC. For instance, in 2014, a newly promoted CDC official got the following email from a Coca-Cola science and health officer. Now, I've seen a lot of ass-kissing in my time, but this is up there. Quote, Heartfelt congratulations on being named Director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity at CDC. Once settled, would welcome the opportunity to come by and discuss current activities and what more can be done, end quote. Look, if you start a new job and somebody emails you and says, hey, congratulations on your new job, let's discuss something, that means they want something out of you. Anyway, The newly promoted CDC official in question wrote back later, clearly impressed by the butt-kissing, trying to get something out of the relationship. Quote, 
I hope you don't mind if I share the fact that a CDC colleague of mine is very interested in working at Coca-Cola. She would be great for external and governmental relations, especially on food, beverage, and physical activity policy, as well as corporate philanthropy, end quote. Now, did you catch all that and all the subtext? This CDC official who just had their broadcast is forwarding on the resume of their friend and colleague at CDC to Coca-Cola. They are forwarding it on in order to get that person a job in the government relations department of Coca-Cola, which you can then assume, I think this is a pretty safe assumption, would then be involved with the CDC. In politics, they call this the revolving door theory. The idea goes that, imagine you're a regulator. Your job is to regulate a certain industry. Now imagine you get sick of your job as a regulator and you're looking for a new one. Well, I'm happy to report that you too can get a job in the industry that you just regulated pretty easily. Coca-Cola and the CDC are no different. Now I could go into much more about the butt-kissing communications. There were dinner meetings, promises to work collaboratively on research involving low and no calorie beverages, and so on. Coke was, as every company is, interested in improving its bottom line. The CDC, on the other hand, had an entire task force on obesity, doing research on sugars and dietary problems and so on. Coke wanted to influence how the CDC made decisions about obesity. And on the flip side, the CDC wanted cushy new jobs. Here's a story from Atlanta's own Channel 2 WSB-TV, talking about the interaction between the two. Note that both Coke and the CDC are hometown organizations, so this local news report is particularly important because it involves a lot of their own constituents. Physicians and public health experts are in virtually complete agreement on soft drinks like Coke and Pepsi. All that sugar is a critical factor in soaring obesity rates. So why was a renowned public health agency cozying up to the world's most famous soft drink company? As an aside, and because of current events, I thought I'd also want to mention that Coke wanted help getting into the World Health Organization's good graces. In some of the emails that Milbank Quarterly revealed, Coke complained to the CDC that the WHO was influenced by the Chinese government and unfriendly to private industry. Hmm, interesting. But I digress. Coke was making these moves with the CDC as the world began to get skeptical about added sugars in food. The CDC has the power to change diets through the results of their research. So this is classic lobbying. And if you're Coca-Cola, why wouldn't you be lobbying? You want to get sugary drinks in people's hands at family cookouts and birthday parties. The Milbank Quarterly article comes to a bold and bombastic conclusion that I'll read to you right now. Quote, the CDC's staff allowed conflicted corporate actors to engage in well-established tactics to further commercial goals, something that should not occur in an organization established to protect public health. It is unacceptable for public health organizations to engage in partnerships with companies that have a clear conflict of interest. End quote. Wow. That sounds really terrible, doesn't it? A public health organization and a revolving door arrangement with soda mongers all surrounding diet and what Americans are allowed to eat. That's like having the fox in the hen house. Except it's not that simple. Yes, Coke makes sugary drinks, and yes, the CDC is tasked with disease prevention, including obesity-related diseases like diabetes and cancer. But the fox in the hen house analogy only works if you also acknowledge that the fox helped build the chicken coop. I want you to grab your favorite beverage and hold on to that thought about soda, public health, and emails. Because that close relationship between Coke and the CDC comes around in a big way. If you haven't listened to the last edition of Outfluenza, I reviewed the origins of the 1918 pandemic in the camps of Kansas, or Europe, nobody really knows, which was part of the problem actually. The 1918 pandemic wiped the floor with the armies of World War I and rampaged through the civilian population thereafter. It killed millions and millions of people. It was the worst pandemic since the Black Plague. One of the persistent problems with influenza was sudden onset of pneumonia, which, among other things, filled your lungs with fluid, making you drown yourself. One way governments react to pandemics is to create committees. Now, personally, I hate committees. I hate meetings. I think the best committee size is actually one. But committees and meetings do have benefits. Get a bunch of experts together and you can find a solution to something. 
1918 pandemic saw the creation of a pneumonia commission trying to find novel solutions like new serums to treat that pneumonia fluid buildup I talked about before. But as the influenza epidemic wound down through 1920, humanity had learned all kinds of lessons about public health. Now, doctors looked for something else they could do to fight disease around the globe. The newly formed League of Nations dove into a new problem head first. They created a malaria commission in the immediate years after the pandemic. This group of experts got together, did some world traveling, hopping from one malaria-infested country to another, and what they found dismayed them. Malaria rocked country after country, from Serbia to Italy and beyond. So with influenza waning, humanity turned to the next threat. Let me introduce a non-human character to this story. It's a villain, really. Today, malaria kills 3,000 children a day in Africa. A day. 3,000 children a day. It's killed millions of us ever since there were that many humans to kill. What's insipid about this disease is that malaria combines the efforts of two tiny monsters. Each of them haunt humanity individually. One of them is a microscopic parasite, and the other is the Anopheles mosquito. You've probably been bitten by one of these mosquitoes. It's not really pleasant, and yes, I am going to keep this audio going just to irritate you. Looked at up close, the Anopheles mosquitoes actually uses six separate needles protected by a kind of sheath to plunge through human skin, sawing into blood vessels beneath with the tiny lancets attached. They need blood meal protein to go through their reproductive life cycle. That's bad enough, but it's what comes along with the mosquito's microsurgery that kills you. Hitchhiking along with a mosquito are any number of parasites. A mosquito is, basically, an airborne dirty needle with its own wants and needs cruising around your neighborhood, laying eggs in the dirty water in your house's gutters. A mosquito doesn't exactly want to be the malaria vector, I think, I've never asked, but it does a pretty good job of it. The parasite involved in malaria is a single-celled organism called plasmodium. It's not a virus, it's not bacteria, it's a protozoa. Protozoa, unlike bacteria and viruses, are related to us, albeit pretty distantly. This is a little bit further than your second cousin. It has a cell nucleus, it has defined cell walls, and plasmodium sees you as a means to an end. It burrows into your liver and begins to multiply. The resulting infection is called malaria. This unholy alliance makes sure that millions of humans suffer from malaria every single day. You die through acute lung or liver failure. You go through fever and chills and sometimes undergo spontaneous bleeding. This is a disease worth fighting. What I said about influenza in the last podcast, I'll say about malaria. It is a classic villain, one without scruples or morals. It kills with abandon. People who have had it will tell you that it often comes back after you thought you'd recover. And it seems to perpetuate itself relentlessly, using us as the host. Now, that malaria commission did a lot of globetrotting, but we didn't have to look far here in the United States, where it hit us pretty hard. Note the use of the past tense, malaria hit us pretty hard. We'll get to that. I mentioned the scourge of American malaria in Counted as Cast, the first podcast series we did for Tinderbox. You're all loyal fans, right? You've all listened to Counted as Cast. In Chapter 1 and 2, you'll hear how our hero, Bill White, lived in eastern Tennessee. Tennessee was, during the height of the Great Depression in the 1930s, known to be a hotbed of malaria in the United States. Up to 30% of the Tennessee Valley had malaria at any one time, which means more than 30% experienced malaria during the course of a year. Put yourself in the shoes of a resident or a politician or a business owner in the Tennessee Valley. If you're interested in seeing the successful economic development of your region, you want to see people getting to work. Malaria crippled the workforce. It destroyed families and livelihoods. Demand began to rise, especially during the Depression, to bring a stop to malaria. That's when we bring in one of the heroes of this podcast, a Wisconsin farm boy named Joe Mountain. M-O-U-N-T-I-N. Almost like mountain, but mountain. Joe Mountain would like to say that he was born in 1891 in the shadow of a grain silo. Joe Mountain would go from the shadow of that grain silo to being one of the foremost figures in malaria prevention and public health. 
Interestingly, Mountain himself suffered from a bout of diphtheria as a kid around the turn of the century, part of an epidemic that killed his brother Ned. He went on to graduate from Marquette with a medical degree, and I'd like to think he did it in part because of his brother's unfortunate death. Right here I'm looking at a picture of Joe Mountain. He was always sporting round glasses, he had a large forehead and slick back hair, and kind of prominent ears that stuck out to the sides. I don't know, he kind of looks like a pharmacist or somebody who sells fireworks. Fresh out of medical school, Mountain joined the Public Health Service, which was the U.S. government's first all-around attempt at working across the country on creating a healthy citizenry. Joe Mountain was assigned as a scientific assistant in the domestic World War I military encampments, working on the health of soldiers billeted in Kentucky, Iowa, and Texas. There's no doubt in my mind that Mountain was working to stem the influenza outbreaks we described in the last podcast. But as World War I wound down, the Public Health Service assigned him to Missouri, where Joe Mountain started to come into his own as a strategic thinker. Working alongside local health boards and the Red Cross, Mountain started his lifelong dance with malaria prevention and control. Missouri, being in the southeast at the time of the Great Depression and 1930s, struggled just as much as its neighbors. From his record, I see signs of Joe Mountain being a steady hand in both the science of disease control and, just as important, the administration of health organizations. In each of his public health service posts, Mountain increased maturity and complexity of the programs that he touched. He seemed to understand staffing and how to get people working in all the right places. This skill carried him to Tennessee, where he developed training programs for doctors, and by 1930 to the White House, where he chaired a conference on childhood health. Once, talking about a lack of knowledge about the treatment of polio, Mountain coined one of his most lasting phrases. Quote, there seems to be a lot of ignorance here. Let's exploit it. End quote. Joe Mountain attacked gaps in scientific knowledge like they owed him money. In general, Mountain looks to me like the kind of public servant a taxpayer wants cloned. As his career matured, Mountain understood how to repair fractured systems and stick the right people in the right places to solve the most stubborn health problems. And in a way, he was kind of a public health renaissance man. He criticized hospital construction with the WPA. He worked on statistical analysis of milk sanitation and water pollution. And he developed training in everything from nutrition to aforementioned malaria control. His success, I think, came from a deep drive and also a unique spark of creativity, all wrapped up in a down-to-earth mentality. Then war came to Mountain's doorstep again. That would be World War II. For the second time in his career, Joe Mountain went back into the service of the American war machine. Now a bigwig in the Public Health Service's Interstate Program Department, Mountain directed resources for the military's health as it recruited across the states. Because, you see, like in World War I, the Army mustered recruits in the southeastern United States before shipping them out to fight Nazis and the Japanese. You did not want these men to be sick upon arrival in Europe or die at home like they did from influenza just a few decades earlier. One of the most important offices Mountain led was the MICWA, that's what I'm going to be calling the MCWA, which was the Malaria Control in War Areas Project. MICWA was Mountain's creation, and as the name implies, it was a special project with its own staff devoted entirely to destroying malaria in the United States. I'm going to read an excerpt from the CDC history book Sentinel of Health by Elizabeth Etheridge, where she talks about the early years of MICWA. Quote, from the beginning... Engineers and entomologists dominated. Physicians assessed malaria cases in the field, and parasitologists ran the laboratory, but major emphasis was always on mosquito control, the engineer's specialty. They determined control methods, directed operations, surveyed and designed drainage construction projects, and mapped field activities. Entomologists, field commissioned in large numbers in 1943, provided the necessary expertise on mosquitoes. The wartime need to save time, money, and equipment dictated that temporary measures like larvicidal control take preference over permanent drained projects. End quote. Well, that all sounds noble and scientifically informed, right? Government scientists running around the countryside saving lives by doing uh, the larvicidal control. You might be asking what larvicidal control entails. 
Well, you remember our Anopheles mosquito from earlier, the six-legged, blood-sucking, venomous menace. Well, remembering that the southeast of the United States has lots and lots of pools of warm standing water, Mick was stepped in to deal with this. But they weren't satisfied with just draining ponds, although they did do a lot of that. In Joe Mountain's own words, they were safeguarding, quote, the health of our soldiers, sailors, and workers in defense industries, those that are being trained to do the shooting, and those who are providing the guns and materials with which to shoot, end quote. They needed the best options available. And there were a few options available to them. In and around 1942 and 1943, Mikwa used Paris Green, made in part with arsenic. Paris Green has a distinctive verdigris coloring and was used in the sewers of Paris to kill rats, hence the name. Mikwa decided this was too expensive for the enormous task at hand, although they did apply it liberally to any standing water. Instead, they switched to diesel oil. Yep. They just lined waterways with a mist of oil, deployed by backpack sprayers or with heavier units on boats and trucks. This is the essence of larvicidal control. Then, an enterprising Swiss scientist discovered a cheap, chlorine-based chemical called, and forgive me for mangling this, trichloroethane. Now, you might know this chemical as DDT. At the time, DDT was a miracle of the industrial age. You could spray this stuff on the walls of houses, you could spray it in the yards, you could spray it in lakes and streams, and not only would it kill on contact, but it would persist in the environment. For a little over $2 at the time, which is about $36 today, you could make an entire dwelling safe for two months. Mosquitoes didn't stand a chance. Here's some uh, propaganda audio from San Antonio, Texas, supporting the spraying of DDT just about everywhere. With the possibility of a serious infantile paralysis epidemic, health authorities of the city of San Antonio, Texas, attacked the germ carriers throughout the city. With the war-discovered DDT in special sprayers, sections of the city are blanketed with the insecticide in the fight to stop the spread of the dread poliomyelitis. Every suspected spot is sprayed. Mikwa waged warfare across the southeastern United States, blasting open water with chemicals, draining the really stubborn lakes and ponds and reservoirs, and making sure plasmodium didn't take hold in the infantry stations in the south. Mikwa also dealt with returning soldiers and the exotic diseases they brought home from abroad, like whatever lurked in the jungles of the Pacific Theater. Here's some audio from a training video on communicable lice diseases during World War II to give you an idea of the organization and effort put into wartime disease control. In many ways, Joe Mountain and his team were really trailblazing here. There wasn't this level of disease control in any previous war. And during the American Civil War, just a century before World War II, there were no antibiotics present at all. So to the clip. As you advance into conquered territory, Moving into war-torn towns filled with filth and destruction, you will meet another enemy, rarely mentioned in frontline dispatches and not too familiar to Americans, but the deadliest enemy of them all. It has entered every war in history and defeated more armies than all the Caesars. This is your enemy, the louse. It carries as its weapons the germs of trench fever, a disease that may disable you for many months. Relapsing fever, a serious and sometimes deadly sickness, and typhus fever, a highly fatal disease. And this wartime effort was working. Mountain's Mikwa team made an appreciable dent in the malaria cases. The success inspired Mountain. He'd already seen a world war, no wait, no, two world wars, and he knew what the end of one looked like. In Europe, the Russians and Americans raced to Berlin. In the Pacific, fighting was ferocious, but the Japanese only lost ground. Mountain had to look forward. He'd spent his professional career building public health service capacity to tackle these communicable diseases. Now, under his leadership, he had a cadre of scientists, entomologists, and civil servants seasoned in disease fighting. The Mikwa, to him, was a model of how a government agency could take on humanity's worst diseases. 
he wanted an agency that used the MICWA model to fight more than just malaria. As Truman dropped nukes on Japan and troops began to file home, Mountain scribbled down plans and tried to find support for a new Communicable Disease Center, or a CDC, that built on MICWA. All the sources I read were in agreement. Mountain started fights with anyone who opposed him. He allegedly annoyed the hell out of just about everybody with his obsession. But he had seen the evolution of public health throughout his career. This was Mountain's life's work. He wanted a government agency that could handle complex, interstate disease concerns and undertake complicated research projects that cross state lines. So Mountain went to Congress, and he convinced the states and their representatives to accept oversight and assistance in coordinated response from a federal government agency called the CDC. He won out. Congress chartered it. But the early CDC started modestly on June 1, 1946. They had a small staff, mostly MICWA veterans, and in Mountain's mind, some needed to be transitioned to the other diseases threatening Americans. An associate of Mountain's talked about these growing pains. Quote, Dr. Mountain was anxious to see his brainchild develop as quickly as possible in the direction of laboratory medicine and epidemiology applied to a much broader spectrum of communicable diseases than that which was vectored by insects or rodents. But the earnest efforts toward that goal were thwarted largely by the unavailability between 46 and 48 of skilled personnel in communicable disease investigation and control, especially with medical backgrounds, end quote. Those are some really long sentences. So in other words, because those were some really long and complicated sentences, the new CDC struggled to not just focus on the M in MICWA. For a while, they did nothing but malaria control and mosquito elimination because, well, that's what they were trained to do. Old dog, new tricks. But as effective as they'd gotten at malaria eradication, they were physically cramped in various field stations scattered across the South. Various divisions competed for lab space. Discussions occurred about whether to move the operation out of its traditional hub in Georgia, but they had no momentum. Plus, many were Georgians. One of the CDC staff even said later that he was native to Georgia, and of course he didn't want to leave. The new CDC, to me, looked a lot like a startup company. It was made up of a lot of dueling personalities, lack of funding, and makeshift offices. The feds weren't helping either. The federal government had bigger fish to fry, because with Europe smoldering, the United States was poised at the end of the war to become the sole superpower on the planet. My guess is that Congress wanted to see if the CDC could survive on its own. So first thing was first, a new headquarters. And at this point, here we are, 25, 26 minutes into the podcast, this is where Coca-Cola enters the picture. I told you I'd get back around to it. At the time of the CDC's founding, 1946, Coca-Cola's board of directors was led by a man with immense business acumen and a propensity for anonymity. It's that interesting tension of shadowy success that makes the 20th century's Coca-Cola mastermind, Robert Woodruff, a fun person to research. So let's digress from the public health service to introduce Coca-Cola's frontman, the other hero in a duel with our six-legged villain. Robert Woodruff, born in 1890, was your classic son of a rich man turned adolescent burnout. Robert's father, who really wanted to see something come of his son, tried to get young Robert through college. He failed. Robert Woodruff enjoyed cutting class and spending money. He dropped out, turned down a respectable job his father offered him, and instead got his own job at the local pipe factory. He got transferred out of the pipe molding side of the business because he was terrible at it, and then he was later fired from the machine shop because he sucked at that too. If you haven't sensed it by now, Woodruff's story is the opposite of Joe Mountain's. Woodruff was no farm boy and no academic either. It wasn't until Robert Woodruff landed a sales job that he really started to shine. He took a position with a truck manufacturer in the sales department and quickly advanced to become the company's vice president. Woodruff knew which opportunities to take and when. When World War I broke out and he was drafted, he made sure that the U.S. Army only bought trucks from his company. Their profits soared. The elder Woodruff, probably just happy to see his son busy and making some money, offered his son another job. You see, Robert's father, using piles and piles of money, had bought a Georgia soda company named Coca-Cola. 
he wanted Robert to run it. Woodruff wouldn't be starting from scratch either. As any Coke memorabilia collector will tell you, Aza Candler, the previous owner, created a tremendous amount of Coke swag. You know, free gifts like napkins, watches, candles, and so on. Candler had seen Coke's future as a soft drink and not as a medicine as it had been originally marketed. That means by the time the Woodruffs took control of it, Coca-Cola started to get some real market penetration. They'd also already taken out the cocaine and half the caffeine. Bummer. When he started the job as president in 1923, at age 34, Robert Woodruff allegedly wanted to make Coke into the, quote, the most American thing in America, end quote. Robert Woodruff had gone from burnout to business executive. Well, with a little bit of a boost from the old man. Looking at pictures of Woodruff, you see a guy with flat face, always smiling, and usually with bags under his eyes that may be because they didn't take out all of the caffeine. Woodruff, it turned out, had a mind for advertising. He could identify and marshal talent probably better than anybody in the business. He brought in Norman Rockwell and N.C. Wyeth for illustrations, further bolstering that whole all-American image. It was Woodruff's reign in the company that popularized the coke-swigging Santa Claus, a fat man in a red suit who was, unlike previous depictions, jolly. And why not? Santa had a sugar high. For your listening pleasure, here's the signature intro music for the Coca-Cola Hour on NBC's Red Network, starting in 1930. Note the red color, which is good branding. This little ditty played for over 20 years. It was subtle and not in your face like other radio commercials. For your late evening listening pleasure, Songs by Morton Downey is brought to you at this time by the Coca-Cola Company. Are you feeling thirsty yet? What you're feeling is the power of good marketing. Woodruff transitioned Coke out of the pharmacy soda fountains into a bottled beverage you could bring anywhere. He insisted on anonymity and opaque business operations, though, which makes it a little bit different to research. But, you know, after doing the Battle of Athens, I feel up to the job. I read one piece that described him as autocratic. For instance, he allegedly kept the secret formula for Coca-Cola in a bank vault. Going through some of the old archives of his old letters, I noticed he didn't really sign them. Correspondence with him just ended in RWW, Robert Winship Woodruff. And that was it. This secrecy extended to his charitable work, which he had a lot of. He started a foundation to make charitable contributions out of his fortune and called it the Trebor Foundation, which you might note is Robert spelled backwards. By 1941, as World War II started to threaten the United States, Coca-Cola had already cemented itself as the new American apple pie. War only elevated the drink. Woodruff made sure that Coca-Cola was in GI hands, and in his words, he, quote, would see that every man in uniform gets a bottle of Coca-Cola for five cents, wherever he is and whatever it costs, end quote. That meant that soldiers going into European villages brought Coke with them. Bottling plants sprung up wherever Americans walked, from Europe to the Pacific. This should sound familiar, given his career in the military is usually about making sure his product gets in the hands of soldiers. He took Coke from being an Atlanta bottling company supplying sugar to American citizens to being an international sensation. I swear... I swear, I'm going to stop at this point and not turn this podcast into a history of Coca-Cola. I do kind of want to, but what you need to know for this podcast is that as he built this soda empire, the orbit of Robert Woodruff, private soda magnate, started to cross with the orbit of Joseph Mountain, public servant. You see, Robert Woodruff had a keen interest in malaria. The story goes that Robert Woodruff loved quail hunting, and it took him to rural Georgia regularly. At one of his quail hunting properties, a worker approached Woodruff saying, I just want to meet the new boss. But as Woodruff and his worker talked about hunting and running the ranch, the worker trembled. It wasn't nerves either. When Woodruff found out that the man had malaria and that more than 60% of the residents of Baker County had contracted it, he was incensed. 
Most of the residents didn't have money to afford medication. Woodruff reacted by showering the county with quinine pills. Quinine is a tropical bark extract that acts prophylactically to stop malaria. You might get a future podcast about quinine because that's a fascinating story in itself. Anyway, the quinine distribution whetted Woodruff's appetite for public health. Wanting to continue to help Georgians, Woodruff used his fortune to begin a decades-long mission supporting the Emory University School of Medicine. Emory University is located outside of Atlanta, and I want you to think of white marbled buildings with red-tiled roofs. The university had spent years benefiting from the fortunes of a man named, oh wait, here he is again, Asa Candler, who helped Emory University build its campus in suburban Atlanta. Yes, that is the same Asa Candler who sold Coca-Cola to the Woodruff family, the wheel of philanthropy terms. But by the time Woodruff got involved at Emory, Candler was long gone. A new family was in town, the Woodruffs. Like many philanthropists who'd given a boatload of money to a nonprofit, Woodruff ended up with a seat on their board of trustees. He funded Emory's field clinics outside of Atlanta to provide free medical services for diseases like malaria. That was a necessity in rural Georgia where medical care was hard to come by. Remember MICWA? That was Joe Mountain's malaria control agency. Well, it turns out that MICWA worked heavily with Emory University and thus indirectly interacted with Woodruff's philanthropic interests. For example, MICWA could refer people suffering from malaria to Emory's free clinics. MICWA scientists researched malaria alongside Emory University faculty and used their labs for testing. Just to be clear, the club of folks working on malaria in the mid-20th century is not large. You start to see Emory, Miqua, and Coca-Cola cross paths in efforts to allocate money and get other people involved in defeating malaria. The Rockefeller Foundation gets in there as well. In Georgia, you had the Holy Triumvirate. Woodruff had the money, Emory the expertise, and Miqua the public health mandate. It was kind of the three-legged stool of malaria control. Well, so anyway, here we are back in 1946, when the new CDC seemed like the red-headed stepchild of the public health service, cramped in a bunch of downtown Atlanta offices, living on government hand-me-downs and competing with the other agency's siblings. Enter Emory, driven by one of their chief philanthropists, Robert Woodruff. As far as I can tell, Mountain and Woodruff became aware of each other's presence during the Miqua years, with their acquaintance brokered by one Dr. Giddings, an old faculty member at Emory. Giddings had spent years and years working with Woodruff to promote public health, and you can probably give him the most credit for cultivating the relationship that would create the CDC's new headquarters. I've read enough low-quality scans of old letters to make my eyes bleed. Whether they had a conversation with each other is something I haven't been able to determine, but I have to assume it happened. Emory University's libraries have been really helpful in looking up some documents, but at the time I'm recording this podcast, they actually can't get into the building because of COVID-19. Yeah, fun stuff. One thing is certain, though. For the fire sale price of $10, Emory University gifted 15 acres of land adjacent to their Atlanta campus to the fledgling CDC. According to one story, the staff of Emory was encouraged to each give a dime in support of the land transfer. Now, that's not a lot of money now. Wasn't a lot of money back then. That was a joke. Very, very funny. Emory, led by Woodruff's persistent voice, aimed to provide the ground on which a headquarters for the shiny new CDC agency could be built. Happily ever after, right? In 1947, just a year after the official formation of the CDC, Emory University and Koch's autocratic executive joined forces to give the U.S. government a generous land grant. A federal government agency, a private philanthropist, and a nonprofit university walk into a bar. The bartender says, we only serve Pepsi here. <laughs> All right, anyway, but seriously, you see that some powerful interests came together to fight a common enemy, a single-celled organism carried by an insect with a straw for a mouth. What could go wrong? The future was bright. You're probably saying to yourself right now, surely Congress recognized they might have an ally in Woodruff and Emory and therefore allocated the funding to get the CDC a brand spanking new building. Surely they saw how worthwhile it was to chase this lead. Surely Congress saw the value of a public-private partnership. They didn't. Nope, they didn't. The CDC did not get their amazing new building until 1960. 
Here's audio from a promotional video someone did about the opening of the new building. CDC has long been the national center of the control of infectious diseases. Its work has benefited mankind around the world. It was, therefore, not surprising that the dedication ceremony drew together members of Congress, officials of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, the World Health Organization, state health directors, and many other leaders in the field of public health and medicine. Even though construction got tied up in the General Service Administration and congressional bureaucracy, the CDC continued to hammer the environment with DDT and drain swamps and reservoirs and do their thing. And by 1951, malaria was gone in the United States. Yep, you heard that right. All those decades of fighting had resulted in the end of a mosquito-borne era. The CDC racked up a win that, when you look around the world today has been replicated very few times. Of course, there was that whole DDT scandal, where we almost lost the bald eagle. Biologist Rachel Carson published Silent Spring just two years after the CDC headquarters opened in 1960. In the book, she described the environmental devastation of DDT and chemical warfare in such vivid detail that some think her book was responsible for the Environmental Protection Agency. One government agency spawns another. Sadly, while Joe Mountain lived to see the American demise of his single-celled foe and the founding of his new agency, he never lived to see the completion of the CDC headquarters. He died in April of 1952, leaving behind an agency that has taken on immense responsibility at the time I'm recording this podcast. I think Mountain's premature departure when he was only in his early 60s is what kept him from being well-known today. Never had a chance to write his memoir. For his part, Robert Woodruff died three days before I was born, passing away on March 7, 1985. He had a long life as chair of the board of Coca-Cola. Today, Woodruff seems to have half of Georgia named after him. His philanthropic reach was tremendous. Woodruff and his siblings gifted over $200 million to Emory University in the 70s, an enormous amount of money today and a ludicrous amount of money back then. Coca-Cola is struggling to sell soda today. Just kidding. Today, Coca-Cola is a massive global corporation, though it's still based out of Atlanta. And now that you know the story of the relationship between Coca-Cola and Emory and the CDC, it brings those CDC Coke emails into relief. Yes, Coca-Cola appeared to have a close relationship with the CDC, but you'd probably be hard-pressed to find a time when they didn't. When all that news broke about the emails between the CDC and Coca-Cola in 2017, The director of the CDC was a woman named Dr. Brenda Fitzgerald. She came into the position highly qualified, highly educated, and having acted as Georgia's Commissioner of Public Health. I want you to take a wild guess as to where she went to school. That's right, Dr. Fitzgerald was a graduate of Emory University. Incidentally, Dr. Fitzgerald resigned as the director of the CDC in January of 2018 after it was revealed that she had investments in a Japanese tobacco company while running an anti-smoking campaign at CDC. Georgetown-educated virologist Dr. Robert Redfield Jr. took over from her in March of 2018. He wasn't in the position for two years before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. It's worth taking a breath now as I wind down this podcast because we have now completed the goal, namely understanding the beginnings of the CDC. Mountain was building something out of nothing, capitalizing on immense ignorance, and essentially writing the book of public health. Our soda salesman Woodruff revolutionized advertising, giving America characters like jolly old St. Nick. With the help of those around them, these two men brought to bear the forces of cheap pesticide and bottled sugar syrup. But on a more serious note, What resulted were whole new realities for American life. Maybe if you're a listener to the Tinderbox podcast, you're more cynical than me, or you're maybe not surprised by things. But what I think is interesting about this story, and maybe even a little shocking, was how the private sector gifted resources to the public sector and that they did it all voluntarily, out of the goodness of their hearts, believing in a mission. I kind of have a hard time imagining this happening today. It likely happens in some sectors, like defense. You see a lot of defense contractors are attached to the hip with the federal government. But I really doubt that the Department of Health and Human Services has gotten a lot of land grants lately. 
You'll hear a lot of billionaires like Warren Buffett saying that he wants to pay more taxes. In other words, give more of his property to the government. What always annoyed me about his statement, though, is that anyone is welcome to pay more taxes if they feel like it. The IRS has a form for that. You, too, can do your part to reduce the national debt. I'm sure that goes for your local taxes, too. If you think schools are underfunded, you're welcome to call up your local school board about a donation. Now, Norway rolled out a voluntary tax system in 2017, you know, pay more taxes if you want to. In the first month, they raised the equivalent of $1,325. So what happened in the 1940s? Why did this partnership between government and private industry occur? I want to throw two possible explanations out there for you to chew on. The first idea I want you to consider is nice and controversial. I want to argue the value of patronage networks. Patronage networks are sometimes called corruption. Okay, yes, I'm arguing for the value of that. Because in this case, you had lines crisscrossing between government and wealthy people and nonprofits and back again. And somehow it all worked out. Now, the libertarian in me screeches in horror. Government picking winners and losers? No! The left-leaning part of my brain screams too. Isn't this quid pro quo corruption? That's not how government's supposed to work. Not with private industry, not with rich people. Let's all take a deep breath. I just wonder whether a certain amount of favoritism and corruption shortens the way to a solution. Yes, all right, hold on. Don't throw anything, hear me out. I've spent my career in the nonprofit sector, and I have met a lot of people who are terrible at their jobs. Radically conservative about any change to process, business practice, and probably unable to recognize a novel solution if it meant unemployment. I've seen them sink their own businesses out of stubbornness. You know the type. They're the ones who hold an organization by the gonads, preventing it from going to the next level. They are people that, according to many sources, Mountain had to fight in his quest to create the CDC. Congress didn't grant Mountain the money he needed, or the land in this case, so he turned to the private sector. Is that corruption? I'm not sure. It's patronage, definitely. But I'm wondering if in many ways these systems, patronage systems, have the ability to identify the most solid links in the chain. If all ideas and workers are equal in front of a bureaucracy, you have fairness. But you might lose a chance at identifying excellence. And then, from what I can see, Coca-Cola and Emory benefited for decades afterwards, at least up until they were caught red-handed. Yes, I picture a CDC with a Coke in their hand getting caught mid-sip. I know. I know. Someone is ready to give me a one-star review on iTunes for this. I'm not saying I'm totally on board with this all the time, but I don't think that this is a clear-cut issue. Something worked in this case. And imagine that if you think back... You can think of one or two cases where some corruption did make things work better. Perhaps, in the conflict of ideas that goes on in human society, there's a healthy amount of corruption that you can have. Where's that level? How do you know you're at the right level? Well, those are the real questions, aren't they? That's why I'm going to turn to my other idea. The other idea I wanted to raise is pretty obvious, but it also has deep implications. I think that the other reason that this whole deal went down was a faith in an institution. Everyone involved in this story believed in an idea, the eradication of malaria and other diseases, and they believed a solution was possible. They followed through. By spraying enough caustic chemicals and putting manpower into place, malaria was exterminated from the United States. Today, the CDC only does surveillance of malaria because of the cases coming in are all foreign. They've retooled their entire workforce. They don't do the old MICWA work anymore. Now they work on typhus, HIV, and today, coronavirus. Eradication of malaria meant that many families thrived where they wouldn't have before. The spiritual, social, and economic benefits are immeasurable. The private sector's faith in this slice of the federal government went deep. The CDC agency's faith in the private sector was reciprocated. The end of malaria was in sight, and then it was in the rearview mirror. Maybe because of faith in institutions, this disease was defeated. All right, interesting thought, but let's back up for a second. I also wonder if, in the mid-20th century when they were fighting this disease, the problem of defeating malaria was solvable because it wasn't that hard of a problem to solve in the first place. So hear me out here. 
A few years ago, Stanford University economists introduced bad news about breakthroughs in the hard sciences. This group had data to show that scientific breakthroughs and the rate of discovery is slowing down. The paper was called, quote, Are Ideas Getting Harder to Find? End quote. Their thesis was that new ideas and problem solving now requires more brains, more time, and more money. Everyone loves the cite Moore's Law, which is that microprocessors double in speed every two years. This research group found that the concept still held, but you now needed 20 times as many personnel to achieve that doubling of speed. Research teams are getting bigger, but the number of patents and novel products they produce is going down. This is my long way of saying that the early and mid-20th century may have been a time of hope for institutions because the problems those institutions solved were smaller, more discreet, and easier to tackle. Today, those same institutions have to deal with staggering problems. Look, for instance, at what the CDC was working on when they got into trouble with Coca-Cola. Obesity. People being overweight costs the United States billions of dollars a year, if not trillions, when you account for all the downstream effects like lost productivity. Obesity kills prematurely and causes a variety of illnesses that cripple people. If we could spray chemicals and drain swamps to stop obesity, I am sure that someone would call for it. But it is not a simple problem. There's so many variables, individual behavior, cultural cuisine, exercise and sedentary lifestyles, medication, pollution, genetics... Mikwa's effort to fight malaria took place over 10, 15 years, with two decades of work before that. CDC's efforts to fight obesity will take twice as long. The problem has not gotten any better, despite billions of dollars dumped on it. Back in the malaria eradication days, you could drain a few ponds and dump some chemicals, and that town was checked off the list. Whereas today, there's no town where obesity has been defeated. We form institutions to solve problems, and at one point, they could. Now, you could counter me by the saying that Will, Mikwa, and the CDC were able to eradicate malaria because they were using DDT. It caused all kinds of problems. DDT not only kills insects indiscriminately, but it's a human neurotoxin. And on top of that, you can say the CDC today isn't the one of yesteryear. It's not the same group of people. They don't seem to be as proactive or empowered. And you'd likely be right on all of that, on all counts. Still, something has changed in the last 80 years. In that time, we've come into a world where we face pandemics, rising seas, nuclear annihilation. The demands on our institutions, private and public, have increased. Problems are harder than ever to solve. Every solution requires sacrifices we may not be willing to make. But if we need new institutions to solve complex problems, those organizations don't just appear. They're products of driven people. Look to the example of Mountain and Woodruff, both eccentric and obsessed. Their types are irritating and single-minded, a lot like a mosquito that's just out for a blood meal. After a few conversations with people like Mountain and Woodruff, you're ready to fire them, ignore them, or otherwise get them out of your face but they also might be exactly the characters you need for the problems we face today. Thanks for listening. I always appreciate it. I appreciate your listening. I appreciate the reviews I've gotten on different media platforms, and I hope to get another podcast to you soon. Stay healthy out there in the tinderbox. box. <laughs>